the morning about break of day. That's when my baby went away. Trying and clean don't do me no good. Come back, baby, wish you would. Welcome to Personal Stories of St. James's. I'm the Reverend Matthew Stewart, and today I am interviewing Alice Killian. Alice is our new junior warden at St. James's, as well as a leader both in our adult formation ministries and also uh, she spends lots of time uh, in our Sunday school and youth ministries. Thank you, Alice, for you're often an interviewer, but thank you for consenting to being on the other side of things today. Oh, I don't know about this. I don't know about switching positions. <laughs> yeah, change is hard. Uh, change is hard. But now I have more compassion for the people I might interview in the future. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I uh, prepared three questions that you know about. Uh, so I'm going to dive into them, things that have occurred to me in the past and conversations that I'm now I'm going to get to pick at and learn more about. Thanks. So Alice, uh, my first question for you is, um, what are some of the places you've lived and what memories come to mind as you think about those places? Well, um, the first place I remember living is Europe. And my parents were so daring as to take a one-year-old on a road trip through Europe, through something like seven countries. I forget. I figured it out once, but I've forgotten. Um, and I, I was only almost two years old uh, when we started out. And I feel as though I have memories of it, but I think those are just from stories that I've heard. But then I ended up living with my grandparents in Belgrade in the former Yugoslavia. And I lived there for two years. And I have uh, quite strong memories of that time. Uh, I was living in a big sort of family tribe. And not only did I have a lot of people who had relationships with each with me, they also had relationships with each other. And that that made the world feel very three-dimensional and deep. Mm. Um, and history was very much a topic because the folks around me had lived through an occupied country in World War I and then again in World War II. And then there was Stalinism that reached in uh, later on. So they had a lot of stuff to process and they reminisced a lot. And I grew up in a kind of, uh, it felt like a nest uh, that I was in that was made out of history and relationships. Huh. And at that point, um, God for me was a mystery looking down on the nest. I remember being confused when I was three and not understanding all these people of this sort of large complex family, what was then large and complex. And my uncle Gruja drew a uh, 
picture of a net. He drew a bunch of dots and he connected them into triangles that looked like a fish net. And I had this blaze of understanding in my little three-year-old mind of everybody being connected. Hmm. Um, and I remember then at some point God becoming for me, I did not have any religious training, although I was baptized there in Belgrade and I, I remember it and it was horrifying to me. <laughs> somebody poured a basin of water over or you know a pitcher of water over my head and I remember this basin at my feet to catch it it was all you know enamel tin with chips in it and I was like what is going on and then I had you know uh, oil dabbed on me by some guy with this biggest beard I've ever seen before or since. And it is all <laughs> no context, just no context. <laughs> um, but after that, I do remember, you know, seeing God as imagining God as a, uh, a sunny day with uh, bright sunshine and a blue sky and very comforting. Um, but then I had a big culture shock because it was time for me to rejoin my family in New York City, in Manhattan. And the reason I'd been parked with my grandparents in Europe for two years was that my mother's uh, dissertation advisor had died and the new guy, her new advisor had demanded that she rewrite her dissertation. And there was all this drama associated with that. And it was my first encounter with what a mentor means, what a good mentor means, and what, the, what an antagonistic mentor means. Because I still remember the name of my mom's dissertation advisor, the first one, who was a good mentor. His name was Professor Ruzicic. And the fact that I remember this just, I think, is a testimony to how much meaning someone else can have in the life of another person unto another generation. Uh, I heard lots of stories about the bad mentor, but I, not his name. Hmm. Um, he Mostly he did not believe that women should be uh, working outside the home or cluttering up the universities. <laughs> so that was one reason my mom had to concentrate on rewriting the dissertation and why I had to go live in another country because of this guy. <laughs> um, but it, you know, for me, it worked out well, except then I had to cross the ocean uh, and live with a family I didn't remember and speak in a language that I did not remember learning. Um, so I had this immigrant experience um, and I remember the culture shock and- uh, how, how old were you when you moved back to, or moved to New York, I mean, maybe even not back? Uh, I was four. So I lived in Europe uh, from age two to four. And I then went back on certain subsequent summers and lived there uh, over the course of a summer. Mm -hmm. But um, when I got over the culture shock of living in Manhattan with my parents who I couldn't remember, uh, you know, things 
you know, then my new life took off. And um, I'm so grateful that my mother, especially socialized with people of all religions, races, classes, uh, socialized with people whose language she did not speak. Um, my grandmother uh, came over with me from Europe and she and my mother would host weekly dinner parties. Uh, that were just like these huge extravaganzas. I don't think they happened every single week, but very frequently. Um, and I have some, you know, really great memories from that. Uh, and just the, the variety of people my parents knew. Uh, for example, one of my favorite friends of theirs that we would go to visit um, my father was an architect, and I think a fellow architect of his was a guy called Bob Anderson, who, um, he was a gay man, and I, you know, grew up knowing people of all, of what was then uh, different gender identities, because this was Bohemian New York, and so, you know, even though I was really little, I understood that you know, bisexuality existed and different um, sexual orientation existed. And I just thought, you know, well, cars exist and leaves on trees exist and uh, people are all different. And anyway, Bob Anderson had these two small Westie dogs called Bonnie and Clyde. And I just couldn't wait. And Bob himself was this really nice, gentle guy. And I would always look so forward to going to this grown-up thing because I could play with Bonnie and Clyde. Um, and uh, so the ways my parents socialized were very, very open and the people were all different. And my mother, you know, if she had a, a belief, it was in the brotherhood of man. That was kind of her religion. And so I grew up raised on that and have ever since been startled that other people don't feel the same way. Mm. <laughs> um, and my father was an architect and the biggest way, and he was very solitary and introverted to put it mildly, mildly. Uh, the biggest way he participated in my childhood was that he would spend every Saturday going to museums and art galleries, usually with me in tow. So I just learned how to be in museums and art galleries and they feel almost, like a second home to me. I few, you know, plopped me down in a, a museum or like avant-garde gallery. I would, you know, sort of feel comforted as though, ah, you know, back to my childhood. <laughs> and my mom, meanwhile, was a fervent music lover and took me to concerts and ballets and the opera. And I also have that same sense, oh, plop me in a concert seat. And I'm like, you know, in my comfort zone. And despite this early introduction to art and music, I have zero artistic or musical ability. I, I don't know where, why, <laughs> genetically, by training, it was all there. And I'm just like, nothing. I got nothing. 
So, so I'm curious, who were you in this in this system? Because in my brain, you've just kind of become Eloise, you know, like ah. running around, you know. Um, uh. <laughs> I was Eloise very much, and I read, you know, grew up on those books too, <laughs> and felt, you know, akin. Um, so I was, uh, I was a little girl, and my next sibling, my younger sister. Did, wasn't born until I was seven and a half years old. So I had the experience of being an only child and what that was like. And when she was born, I had the experience of being the eldest child. Mm -hmm. That was to change later on. <laughs> uh, but the other thing about where I was living was I was living on the Upper West Side of Manhattan um, uh, where my mother had been relatively within commuting distance of Columbia University, where she was um, doing her doctoral program. And my dad was on a good uh, subway line to go to work uh, downtown or midtown Manhattan. He worked for a fancy architecture firm called Skidmore Owings and Merrill. And I used to enjoy uh, the few times I was allowed to go there and see all the models, the architectural models of different structures with these teeny weeny uh, trees and cars and little people. Mm -hmm. And it was like a series of dollhouses. Mm -hmm. And it made me love dioramas and things like that. And if some of the little things got broken, I uh, my father would give them to me, or maybe the other architects in the office would give them to me. So if there was a little tree that was broken, I would get that. And I had several of the little people who were missing arms and legs. And, you know, I haven't thought of this for a long time, but I realized that, you know, even in that world, in that model architecture world, there was brokenness and the brokenness <laughs> would come to me and I would you know, nurture it and take care mm -hmm. of the tiny broken uh, people <laughs> with their missing limbs. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and at that time, when I was a young child, I still saw God as a sunny day and I used to talk to God and uh, alarming things would happen and I would talk to God about them. And no one ever taught me to pray or explain prayer to me. So I would ask God for things, but mostly I would tell God about my feelings, um, especially my feelings that I thought would be unacceptable to adults. Mm -hmm. um, I could talk about most everything with my mother but she worked full time and my grandmother did the daycare and I had, I went to, you know, early school and um, my grandmother was certainly not open-minded, not at all. <laughs> so I would, you know, tell God about things that I um, needed to. Um, and then at some point, uh, and I, my, and my grandmother would come and go from Europe and I would have other babysitters or nannies when she wasn't around because both my parents worked full time and daycare didn't really exist or not, it didn't fit in with our family rhythms. Um, 
And at some point, my father really encouraged, really kind of pushed uh, atheism on me in a very intellectual way, because he was uh, very intellectual. And I was all about atheism for, for, you know, a good part of a year. And then I had got into all kinds of trouble uh, over that because I was loudmouthed about it. And also I started to perceive all these kinds of gaps in the atheist worldview. And so I lapsed back into my mom's open-hearted agnosticism that was all about the brotherhood of man. Um, a kind of very lofty humanism mm -hmm. um, and that included all of creation, uh, you know, animals, plants, everything. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, my sister was born and that was really fun for me. And then uh, my father left the family. He had an affair with someone and moved out. And it was uh, just my sister, my mother, and at that point, my grandmother uh, all together. I forgot to mention that my grandfather would also travel over from Europe at various times, but if I told you everything, it would go on too long. Anyway, my mom died in a car accident and I went to live uh, with a new family who were relatives of mine. And I and my little sister were in Europe that summer that my mom died in the car accident. And there were all these conversations about what would happen to my sister and me. And I was kind of- How old are you at this point? So I was 14 and my sister was six. And there were, you know, elaborate negotiations um, with the result that my sister stayed living with my grandparents in Europe for one more year. And I went to live with my aunt and uncle and their kids. Um, and they were actually my father's first cousins. So, um, but I called my aunt and uncle, aunt and uncle, or by their first names, and I called my cousins siblings. Okay. Um, and I, it, it was sort of, uh, it was helpful for me to do that in school because it was hard, it would have been hard for the other kids to understand my family structure. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that amuses me is that moving to Queens from Manhattan, I thought, I had gone to live in the suburbs. I knew it wasn't the country because I'd visited the country, but I thought it was the suburbs. And <laughs> I was, you know, uh, I was probably in my late 20s before I realized that uh, I was living in an urban place in a borough of the large city of New York, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, when I moved into my in with my new family, there was, you know, this big culture shock and a new sense of tribe, but one that felt very different. So, you know, up until this time, I'd been sort of like translating from family structure to family structure. 
And later that became a source of richness for me, mm -hmm. a kind of wealth of experience. Mm -hmm. um, and e even at the time it did, because living with this new family, I had uh, so many new, so much new information came my way, so many doors uh, opened up for me. That makes it sound as though I benefited in some economic way, but it was more just education. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and at that point I was an agnostic and I stayed an agnostic until the year 2003 when I had a conversion experience. But at the time, I did have a sense of being watched over and guarded, and I developed this concept of guardian angels. Uh, and that was kind of my youthful understanding of the kind of protection my new family were able to give me. I know that they were intentionally protective, but I don't know that they know how uh, what they did and said, how that played out in sort of a daily way. Um, so one of the examples was that my aunt Meg uh, took me to meet, uh, took me to school, my new school before it opened during the summer. Uh, and I, she had arranged appointments for me to meet the chairs of each different uh, school department. And I did not realize this until relatively recently in, I realized that all those teachers were looking out for me. Mm -hmm. They felt bad that I had been, you know, essentially orphaned and even separated from my sister and that I was living with, you know, this new family. Um, their hearts went out to me and all my teachers through the end of high school were looking out for me in a kind of special protective way. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time in my school life that I was not bullied as much as I had all those other years there's a lot of oh i forgot to tell about my elementary school oh no can i go back a little yeah, bit i think we i think we can follow that thread yes <laughs> so my neighborhood in manhattan was you know this was the 1970s and all kinds of chaos were going on manhattan the city of New York was uh, having serious economic troubles. In my neighborhood, there'd been this huge white flight. Um, and I went to a, a school that was mostly black, although there were a lot of Puerto Rican kids who were immigrants. And then, you know, like a few uh, kids from South uh, East Asia and other places. But I was really a minority being uh, white. And that was, um, I think that was very formative for me. Uh, I, you know, one of my memories is of all the black kids, the black girls 
really enjoying combing my hair because it was so different from theirs. It was, you know, long and stick straight and very fine. And they, I had a comb that was different from their combs. And then they would let me use their combs and do things with their hair. But their hair was usually more styled. So, you know, some of them had puffs or an afro and I could, you know, use an afro pick to, uh, on their afros a bit and, you know, put the, <laughs> let the, their afro picks just hang out in their hair without falling out as they would in mine. And they would let me, you know, uh, unfasten the uh, barrettes that held their uh, cornrow braids in place. But of course, I couldn't undo them and redo them because, you know, their moms or whoever had worked for hours. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I could, you know, a little bit, you know, so that was uh, cool. But there was a huge amount of uh, violence and dirt and chaos in my neighborhood. Uh, I remember a time there was a sniper on the roof and all us kids had to stay in school after hours and stay under our desks and the police had to come and remove the sniper. There were, there was serious violence within my elementary school and even worse in the junior high, I almost ended up going to, um, that I can't even mention in a podcast, it, just horrific. Mm -hmm. And my neighborhood was full of uh, folks just completely strung out on drugs and keeled over. Uh, and there was a lot of talk about drug raids and police and um, things like that. I also remember, you know, going up to my piano teacher's house for piano lessons. And that was scary because it went through an even worse neighborhood. But my piano teacher who is white had a partner who was black and I used to hang out with him. And so like, I, I grew up thinking that biracial marriages were just, I didn't think of them as a biracial marriage. They were just a marriage. And you know, other friends I had, their parents were of two different races. And I just, you know, I, it never occurred to me that that was something different. I didn't learn a, that it was different until, you know, years later. Uh, but it was also before the Clean Air Act was passed. And so the incinerators of New York that burned all the garbage would just spew huge amounts of dirt into the air. And uh, you couldn't really touch anything without a layer of soot coming off on your hand the way it would as if you now touched the inside of a fireplace. Um, and I remember thinking it would be kind of magical when pieces of debris would rain down on the sidewalks and I would try to catch little bits of newsprint and read the words. You know, the, the incinerators had spewed out the unburned pieces and I would catch them the way kids sometimes try to catch snowflakes. And I would try to uh, read the words written on the newsprint. But it was amazing to me later after the Clean Air Act was passed, how clean things got. Uh, so, you know, my childhood was 
very colorful and it and various I started I never knew my parents were bohemian until in the past few years I've met people who just don't understand can't picture how I grew up and so I use the word bohemian to describe it um, but I'm still learning uh, to this day, day by day, how odd it is. And I'm still being startled by other people's, you know, experiences of how they grew up. Um, anyway, I felt protected when I went to live with my uh, new family, my aunt and uncle and cousins. And uh, I think that I managed to thrive in school because of how my uh, teachers looked out for me. And I, I had only met the chairs of the departments, most of whom were not my teachers, but they told the teachers within their departments. And um, I wish that for every child, you know, I wish that every child could have that experience of having their teachers that invested, or that benign or that understanding, mm -hmm. uh, you know, sort of just regarding me with a kindlier eye than would have been warranted from my being in the world. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, uh, and I, I want to just give a shout out to my uncle Bill who was, you know, one of the most wonderful people in the world. And oh, one of my favorite memories from childhood, the thing I treasure most was my mom coming in to talk to me uh, after I went to bed. Um, I was usually put to bed by my grandmother, but sometimes my mother, who would sometimes get back from work really, really late, she would come in and just spend time talking to me. And that was maybe my chief gift um, from my childhood. And my uncle Bill would spend time talking to me after dinner. Often um, we would just linger uh, talking after dinner. And that was for me a kind of continuation of what my mom had given to me. And, um, uh, and my family, my new family in general, uh, spent a lot of time hanging out together and just shooting the breeze. And that was also great. Uh, it was a house where the TV was almost never on. And uh, what people did was to go in and out and talk to each other. Uh, so I'm very grateful for that. Uh, and then, you know, I graduated from high school and went to college and I lived in a whole bunch of other cities, East Coast, West Coast. Um, you know, some a few weeks in Japan, um, lots of different places, uh, all of them big cities. Cambridge is one of the smallest places I've ever lived. <laughs> a little shyer of Cambridge. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, I'm, I mean, a number of things occur to me, but you know what I guess what I'm most struck by um, is yours could, you could tell your story as, and your story could be one of a spirit of loss and pain. Um, I, you know, like, you know, your mother, you know, you're sh being shuffled about um, for your childhood. And yet you tell the story, I'm not, it doesn't feel that way to me. Um, it feels like a story about learning from all the experiences and finding blessings, be they God at a sunny day or people you know, that, are, that care for you um, despite them. So I guess I wanna ask about that a little bit. Um, it, why, I mean, at, how do you process your childhood, uh, if I'm hearing you right, as something that you seem to experience as positive rather than something that's about pain and hurt? Uh, I think a large part of it was having my mother in my life. Mm -hmm. And I think she was, you know, I think she was my door to God. Mm -hmm. uh, she did not grow up with any religious training, but she had a great love of people. I think she was spiritually gifted. Mm -hmm. uh, so she... Um, ended up, she became a professor of comparative linguistics, and she was always very interested in culture and language as a means for people to communicate. She had friends whose language she did not understand, and she would slowly acquire it as she got to know them. And I emulated that uh, later on. I've often socialized with people in groups where I don't speak the language because my mother modeled that for me. But my mother had this very, she was very, very warm and, uh, you know, loving is, you know, I feel like so many, many parents are deeply loving. Um, my mom had a kind of love for all humans and plants and animals and conveyed that love in sort of everything she did and said. Mm -hmm. I am, I, one of my sorrows in life is that she died when my sister was six years old, mm -hmm. no, seven seven years old. Oh, I can't remember. Um, six or seven. And uh, for the last couple of years of my mother's life, she was sad and in ill health because when my father left and she got divorced, it was a kind of shattering mm -hmm. for her. And so my 
little sister's memories of her are of her sad. Mm-hmm. Whereas I remember I have this wealth of um, her being happy and hopeful and deeply engaged with everything in the world. Uh, but still, I think, I'm not sure I should talk to my little sister about this, but I think that she does have some memory of mom being kind of a, a real presence. Mm-hmm. And other people who've known her and met her spoke that way of her. Um, you know, I have a very close friend who knew my mother growing up and spoke of my mother as being a blessing in her little, you know, child life. Not that her life was little, but when she was little. So I think my mother modeled a godly life for me, Mm -hmm. even though she had no relationship to a church and was interested in all religions and introduced them to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think she was so wonderful in the lives of so many people that I have consciously tried to live into uh, knowing her, being mm-hmm. more like her, um, I don't know if that. No, (laughs) I think it's so important for kids to have just like one person, you know, one person to be that, be somebody like that for them. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I'm hearing again, and again, tell me if I'm reading this wrong, but I think. the expansiveness of your experience and your mom's way of being. I, and I think a lot of a lot of parents are quite loving, um, um, but it doesn't necess- but it doesn't necessarily translate to outside the familial tribe. Um, and you know, one thing I think um, about you um, is you relish being in new tribes uh, um you know like i sometimes you like i've heard you say like why don't people want to have more intergenerational relationships it's wonderful and i you learn new things um, um and it comes really naturally to you um to like to, to want to be in new people groups um whereas for many people probably me included to some extent um you know it, it's let, let, there's an anxiety around going to the next into that group and so i know i probably should experience that but i need to like build up the nerve to go there uh, whereas for you you you're, you maybe i'm misspeaking but it feels like you you wouldn't know how to not go <laughs> into that next people group that, that, that's just how you're wired um uh, yeah absolutely and i think i was wired that way by my upbringing you know mm-hmm. my childhood and my mom uh, but I I understand the uh, also the that anxiety because I just plunge you know I just du- jump into the deep end <laughs> of a new group and then I'm startled when it doesn't work out. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's some gnarly situations out there. <laughs> oh, the world is not perfect. Wow. Huh? <laughs> 
Who knew? Um, Who knew? I, I, I really, I, even though I grew up in like this kind of crime torn neighborhood, strife torn, I, I just always startled that <laughs> things are not. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to transition to uh, my second question for you, um, which is a different, maybe connected in some ways, but, it, but it, it's a little different. Um, so you once told me you're drawn to the Trinity. Um, and most people, I think, Christians think of the Trinity as more of a sort of second order brand doctrine, uh, rather than something that they're emotionally connected to. They'll say, I'm drawn to God or Jesus or to spirit or to something like God as sunny day. Um, uh, but, but Trinity is not a thing that people have a uh, affinity for um but you but you you said that you, if i heard you right when you said it you, you, you there was an emotional connection to that idea for you so i wanted to uh... Uh, totally there's totally an emotional connection i'm like this complete trinitarian um uh that comes out of my conversion experience mm -hmm. um but i'll also say that i am I find myself also startled when people feel drawn to one or other person of the Trinity. It seems odd to me as though they were drawn to, I don't know, their friend's left hand or something. I just like, you know, apart. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, I can understand enjoying, particularly enjoying the presence of one part of the Trinity at different times, because how we experience God is, you know, necessarily through our sort of um, uh, limited by our own minds, understanding and experience. Mm -hmm. But for me, God is very much the Trinity. And I think so the way my conversion experience happened was that um, I was at this point in my life uh, doing a lot of yoga uh, and meditation. And I was literally searching for God, except I was an agnostic and I did not think that God existed, but I was looking for some sort of guidance from the universe, if such a thing could exist, which all I knew about was that, you know, yogis, uh, writers, you know, Patanjali, who wrote the Yoga Sutras, and other people wrote about such things. Buddhists talked about it. Um, so I was looking for that. And what I actually found was a Christian God, which was quite upsetting. Uh, yeah. Okay, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so so um, boring. And <laughs> non-Bohemian. Totally not boring as it turned out, but <laughs> um, so I was in mourning at, at one point in my life and, you know, looking for solace. And anyway, one thing led to another and I just bang 
um, I could recount step-by-step step the journey, but I will spare you. I will just say that bang, I had what I think writers call uh, an ecstatic vision. Mm -hmm. I was completely within the vision. And what I saw in the vision was a Christian God. I would have been at that ignorant point, I would have been very glad to have seen just God without Jesus. It was very startling to see Jesus given my, you know, very agnostic secular upbringing and the classes I'd taken. <laughs> um, and it wasn't until I, you know, started going to church, which was about something like 13 years later, that I realized the Holy Spirit was there as well. I just had, you know, at that point, I had no idea of what the Holy Spirit was or who the Holy Spirit was. So I didn't have the means to apprehend that even within my ecstatic vision. Mm -hmm. But when after, what that conversion experience did, I mean, it did countless things, but one of the things it did was it, it planted something in me that was constantly opening. Mm -hmm. um, an evil variation of this is like when you get a computer virus and it keeps planting things all over and finally, <laughs> you know, your whole system shuts down. Um, what my conversion experience did for me was the opposite. It kept things of wonder and joy kept unfolding mm -hmm. and they spread everywhere uh, mm -hmm. through me little by little. If they had spread all at once, I would have just like, you know, <laughs> would have not have been able to live. It would have been overpowering as it was. It was just like physically, mentally, emotionally, you know, blew me out of the water. And uh, after that, I realized that I had had other God moments, God experiences, uh, spiritual experiences, but I had not been able to look at them or understand them. I had sort of shrugged them off because I couldn't process and having that conversion experience made them blossom out and I could unpack them and see what was there. And I can keep now going back and unpacking more. Mm -hmm. And also I continue to have very powerful spiritual experiences, but I've become shy about talking about them. Um, in for the first 13 years after my um, conversion experience, I was closeted. So I went from being this kind of secular agnostic to being this like crazy God person. Mm -hmm. And yet I kept it a secret because I didn't know anyone I knew you know, I knew two people who were Christian and two people who were Quakers, but that was it. And I knew a lot of people and most of them, you know, thought that Christianity was like the moral majority, this, you know, political 
uh, entity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I could not come out about being Christian. It was fraught with the possibility that it would break relationships. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it did. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, could, I could not have come out in the moment. Uh, and I only slowly came out about now believing in a Christian God. I slowly, slowly came out to uh, the friends I trusted most, mm-hmm. only one of whom was a Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at some point, um, really through the urging of that friend, I came out to my husband, my then husband, who was Jewish. That was like two years after my conversion. And he took it very, very poorly. Um, did not like it at all. Uh, it was very traumatic telling him about it. And we never uh, discussed it, touched on it at all. But there was a big shift in my relationship, in my marital relationship, which I, again, I didn't understand, couldn't understand. And I found that all along that as I get older and have more experience and learn more, that things that I couldn't understand keep increasingly being revealed. Mm -hmm. And I see more of what was actually going on. Mm -hmm. And I have more compassion for all the people involved. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes something very difficult will happen and very, very painful. And I can't approach it. But then, you know, a whole bunch of time later, I can regard everyone involved in the situation with much, much more compassion. And that's a real blessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it, I guess it's kind of connected with forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't come out as a Christian until I started going to St. James. And what happened was that my husband walked out on December 27th, 2016. And I walked into St. James the first Sunday in January of the new year. And the last, the rest is history. <laughs> but people don't realize, I mean, it's so wacky. I'm so church involved. And like now I'm a junior warden, but four years ago, I didn't know any of the terminology, you know? I mean, I learned about communion in college in a, a class. I, you know, I just, <laughs> I, I didn't know what a rector was. I had to ask uh, our, our previous rector, uh, you know, what does that mean? I, I just, uh, I, I didn't have any, any of the vocabulary. I didn't know what an altar was. Um, I, you know, I 
just so my learning curve has been very steep. And if you're listening to this podcast, I would like you all to cut me some slack if I use the wrong terminology and to remember that I'm really a kind of baby within the church. I mean, I've been, you know, having this God relationship for a long time, but I was unchurched. And so I know nothing. I'm like a, a preschooler. I'm four years old in terms of church going. So, you know. <laughs> I, nothing you said would suggest that you're four years old. So, so, so. Oh, I can tell you stories. <laughs> In fact, I remember you laughing at me once because I was like behind the altar and I've, you know, maybe been behind the altar like, oh, I, you know, a handful of times and I was like behind you and then you like motioned me to step up closer to the altar and I instantly like became paralyzed and immobilized and stiff and you know, like couldn't speak or <laughs> do you remember this? Vaguely, but I, I hope I, I hope. No, you, no, you, I you hope you express my giggles as not condescending. But I, not at all, not at all. I was very amused. And then I had to precess out, you know, down the aisle, you know, like first time ever. And when I got to the uh, west door of the church, Julia was there and she took me by the shoulders and she held me and she said, breathe, breathe. <laughs> and I realized I'd been holding my breath and I was sort of able to, <laughs> but yeah, I was just like, <laughs> I'm not, you know, this, everything is, everything that happens in church is in some ways like, uh, has the, it's like shockingly new, mm -hmm. breathtaking, fresh. Uh, people talk about, you know, trying to not say a prayer like the Lord's Prayer by rote. And for me, it's like, you know, like every word is burning. And mm -hmm. also there's all these variations of it. So I can't even like, what, which one? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, the Trinity, you know, I had an experience of God as Trinity from the get-go mm -hmm. and, and God means, you know, harmony and relationship and movement and completeness and mystery. Mm -hmm. I mean, a kind of endless source of everything. Mm -hmm. um, and, and this, it's like the opposite of that, which is static. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Trinity means to me abundant life, sort of vibrating with the energy of creation. Um, so I think about the Trinity all the time. All the time. Yeah, well, that, I mean, and all the three parts, you know. Yeah, all that land and the ancient language of Trinity is dance. You know, like I hear, yeah, I don't know. You, you've probably heard that in some of your EFM stuff or, or it'll come. Um, but yeah, that's how the, the first church fathers, that's a, a term, the language they use for Trinity. Oh, uh-huh. And so I hear that. In oh, your, yeah. Um, I hear that in your language about movement and energy. Um, yeah. I encountered that in EFM, as yeah. you said, mm -hmm. dance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah. But I encountered it first, really, in my body. In experience, yeah. <laughs> in my experience, yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. So I've got one more for y'all um, and for you. Um, 
So we're recording this on Ash Wednesday. Um, and this is a you know, day in the life of the church um, where Christians are called to reflect on numbers of things as we're moving into the season of Lent. But one particular item is, is our mortality. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit, um, you've been a hospice volunteer for what, four or five years now, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and then obviously that's a ministry where mortality is yeah, more front and center than it is in many people's lives. So I'm just curious what you've learned and experienced in that part of your life. Um, I'd like to preface uh, by explaining how I came to uh, volunteer for hospice. Um, there was a, you know, in a church, we speak of tritiums. There's the East, the Paschal tritium. Mm -hmm. And also I was delighted to find out there's an all souls tritium. Mm -hmm. um, uh and, you know, this is within the Episcopal tradition. I carefully researched all this before we had our in-person gathering uh, for family ministry for families on Halloween. I was okay. like, okay, <laughs> I've encountered people now who uh, are not comfortable with ha Halloween because it's somehow, you know, they have trouble uh, squaring it with their religion. So I did all this research and, you know, <laughs> it's cool from what I could see. I, I, I have the references in the literature. Yeah. <laughs> but there was a tritium in my life, which was the death of my young nephew, James, from cancer after a ferocious year-long battle that I had uh, the privilege of accompanying him through part of it. Mm -hmm. That happened in November of 2016. Oh. And then my husband left on in December of 2016. And then in January of 2017, uh, I started going to church to mm -hmm. St. James. And those three things actually, they sound like three months, but they were took place, I think, probably over the course of a month and a half, something mm -hmm. like that. And uh, that was experiencing that boom, boom, boom was uh, powerful to say the least. And I shortly thereafter started volunteering for hospice and um, I knew that I felt very comfortable around death and dying because of processing the death of my mom when I was a kid. And also, you know, growing up in this family in Europe that had been just devastated by world wars and mm -hmm. Nazism and uh, Stalinism. Uh, like my grandfather had been imprisoned for two years under, you know, when Stalin was in power for a political joke. Uh, so he did not die, but other people did. So there was, you know, I've been, I felt sort of very much surrounded by death and the dying and interested in it. Uh, and although it was wrenching, it's just so, so painful when someone dies. I mean, you know, usually, uh, um, but 
I've had so much experience of it personally and through uh, companioning other people, um, talking to other people, being in relationship with those who are mourning. And when my mother died, even though I was still an agnostic, at that point I started to believe in the afterlife because it seemed impossible that someone so the close to holy that I've ever encountered that someone like that would just disappear. Mm -hmm. Even though she thought she would, I think she found out she was wrong. Um, uh, that, she, but you know, she is always with me. We can just square that with, um, you know, the human secular experience, mm -hmm. even. But I just believed that she was in the afterlife, whatever that looked like. And when I met God in my conversion experience, I knew that the people who had died were with God. God reminds me of that whenever I am in mourning. Uh, so although I, I felt when I say I feel comfortable around death, I don't mean to say that I don't understand the tremendous pain people feel, the, you know, the devastation, the horror, the, the empty hole that feels like it can never be filled. I could go on like this <laughs> until we're all like, you know, crying into a box of tissues, but, um, what I mean to say is that it has been present for me very viscerally my whole life. Mm -hmm. So it's been, it has never been anything I've wanted to ignore. It's always been something I've been mm -hmm. very interested in. Um, and so uh, volunteering for hospice uh, has been a way that I can help people and accompany them on that journey. And one of the things that has I've been amazed about is that uh, how individual people's experiences are with death. You know, just as everyone lives this unique life, so each death is unique and intensely mm -hmm. personal. And I, growing up, I didn't quite realize that because, you know, uh, people had lost relatives who had been, um, you know, died in executions at the ha hands of Nazis. Mm -hmm. um, they'd, there'd been a lot of deaths by car accident in my family. Uh, there, I didn't have as much experience with people who died slowly and in the sort of enveloping warmth of hospice care. Mm. Uh, I've now been volunteering for hospice for four years and I've encountered negative experiences with hospice as well as positive ones. Mm -hmm. And I've had encounters with not just the hospice I volunteer for, but lots of other hospices. Um, and I know that, um, 
you know, a, it is possible for someone to have a negative experience with hospice, but overall hospice is just wonderful. It's, you know, this cocooning mm. and it's not just for the person who is on their journey to death and the afterlife, but it's also hugely important for the whole family. It's uh, a social safety net. It's um, care so you don't feel alone, so you don't mm -hmm. feel you're going to fall through the cracks, so you're not facing something frightening by yourself. Uh, you know, I can't recommend it enough to anyone who's got a relative who is, you know, re having, you know, the end of life loom. Uh, and if folks have a, you know, negative experience, they can switch hospices, you know, until they're comfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the people I've talked to often just regret that they didn't start hospice care sooner. Mm -hmm. And it's also possible that if someone recovers, they can leave hospice and then return as needed. Mm -hmm. And people who live on a kind of margin of ill health versus health sometimes go in and out of hospice. Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, helpful for people that if you're not absolutely sure that the end is nigh, you, you don't need to get confident about that. Not at all. Not at all. And some of my, you know, kind of wonderful hospice experiences are people who got well, you know, mm -hmm. perhaps miraculously, I don't know, but. Uh, uh, are there stories you can share? I don't know. I, I don't know about the ethics around confidentiality and such. So obviously there's uh, like maybe you can say nothing, um, but I'm, I'm curious, I'm curious if, if there's a particular narrative you're allowed to share? And if, if the answer is no, just tell me, because I'm not as familiar with hospice. So in fact, there's a lot of, conf you know, I, I don't really understand the confidentiality rules mm -hmm. completely. Mm -hmm. I am constantly, you know, day, every day of my life, I'm learning new things about confidentiality in all <laughs> kinds of areas. And also the rules are expanding mm -hmm. um, as well. Uh, and I, I wish I could share some of the stories because okay. some of them are beautiful. Mm -hmm. You know, they would give joy to people to know and to hear, but I, okay. I can't I'm share sorry. those. I can, um, you know, I can describe the impact on me. Okay. How have you been changed in four years by this? It's by being a companion to people who are on this journey. Mm -hmm. And I have seen each person's journey is unique. And so each journey I take with each patient is unique and different from mm -hmm. every other one startlingly so, uh, and they reflect the person's health condition, but more than that, they reflect a person's inner condition of how they've, the manner of their life, what they 
understand their understanding of life, their understanding of relationships. Um, I've encountered uh, hospice patients who are so rule bound, for example, mm -hmm. that even though hospice permits certain kinds of things, you know, they're not going to accept them until they get it in writing that this is okay to do. Mm -hmm. And I've also had hospice patients that never really understand what hospice is, but if something is offered to them, they'll say yes and try it out and see how that goes. You know, they're just completely um, open and in some ways not curious. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, uh, but, people often, the, the process of dying um, often brings, often educates people, often brings new experiences to them that they could not otherwise have. Mm -hmm. It's like, I don't know, going to college or something. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's definitely joining a club. Mm -hmm. You know, anytime you have one of these experiences, like, you know, if you have a child, you know, you adopt a child, you become a foster parent, you have a biological child, uh, you start, you know, needing to pitch in to care for a child that doesn't have support. Um, you enter this club of parents, mm -hmm. of people that understand what that's like. Uh, if you become a parent of a baby, you, un you come to a new understanding of sleeplessness mm -hmm. that, you know, I don't know that you can really understand until you've gone through it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and similarly, when you're dying, uh, you have these experiences that, and you join this club of people, of how many millions of people, billions have gone before you? I don't know how many people have died <laughs> over history. Um, but then also the, all the people in the future, the billions in the future who will be dying, you join this big club mm -hmm. uh, and you can learn so many things if you're interested in that. Or you can just like cocoon in this womb of care as well. Um, it, it's, it's an opening. There's, it's an opening, not a, not a closing and an ending. No, not, I, I don't see it that way at all. And I, uh, the people, I mean, there are many people who die young and slowly, and it's just horrendous. It's a tragedy. It's, beyond what I have words to describe. But in all cases, it's really the mourners who are left behind who need support. And one of my, and hospice is provides some support for them, mm -hmm. but I wish our society provided more. Mm -hmm. um, I, I wish, it's, it's a very solitary feeling sometimes to mourn, even when you're with a family to mourn. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, I wanna, since we're 
in Ash Wednesday, I want to end on an upbeat note. Or no, we can keep talking forever. Like it probably makes sense to wrap up. So yeah, so you're so you're up. Not not that this hasn't been in some ways life giving and upbeat. I don't. This has not felt down, but um, at all. But uh, if you have a thing that, that's in your heart to share for to wrap up, that would be lovely. Um, well, I know, and I know this from having now gone to church. I didn't know anything about Ash Wednesday before. You know, my first Ash Wednesday in Lent, the start of Lent 2017. Um, but for me, Ash Wednesday feels incredibly sweet. Hmm. And I'm worried if I say this, that, you know, I'm saying something theologically suspect. But for me, repentance and confession are incredibly sweet. Hmm. Uh, just like, for me, uh, it's like opening a present because that kind of metanoia experience you have of repentance, of turning around, you know, suddenly you've turned your back on the pain and ugliness and you've turned your face towards, you know, beauty and wonder and joy. Mm -hmm. And so anything that represents that movement, that turning around, uh, for me just feels like, you know, chocolate cake or something. Mm. Um, so, you know, I get really, really excited for Ash Wednesday. Uh, I love that image. At Ash Wednesday is the chocolate cake uh, that you're not, that you're not, that you're not giving up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so that's wonderful. And I think uh, on that note, it, we I tell call the it Wait, story wait. about oh. confession. Oh, oh, I want hey, to share. Hey, I want to share. Sorry, I wanted to cut no, off. No, no, my last no. one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I'm running on so much. Uh, so one time we were having a kids service, kids worship uh, at St. James. And I was, my post was at the door to the nursery so that, because um, people were going in and out and, you know, <laughs> there could be all kinds of, you know, <laughs> strange activity going on at that particular threshold. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and uh, Ivy Saltzman, a kid at our church school came and sat with me and we were sitting together. She was drawing a lot of the time because she's very artistic. And, it, and then confession came along. And I instantly, I love confession. I love it like Ash Wednesday. It is chocolate cake. I Confession came along and I dropped to my knees like, a, you know, I could not get to my knees quickly enough for me. Um, like you can't wait to dig your, you know, fork into the chocolate cake. And uh, Ivy drops to her knees instantly. <laughs> and so, you know, I read confession aloud and I'm sort of, you know, leaning towards her and, you know, showing the place in the bulletin. And then, um, you know, you give the blessing and Ivy and I get back in our chairs and then she whispers to me, what is it we did wrong? <laughs> <laughs> it's 
<laughs> so good. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I. It's so perfect and <laughs> wonderful and beautiful. I'm, Ivy's one, I miss many, but Ivy's definitely one of them. <laughs> yeah, I miss, I miss in-person church so much. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Alice. This has been wonderful uh, and helpful. And I'm really happy that you didn't make me feel like the Ash Wednesday sermon that I will preach soon is totally wrong. So thank you for that. Um, uh, and I'm going to say goodbye to you and our listeners. Thank you. Goodbye, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Please volunteer to be interviewed. It's not nearly as scary as I expected. <laughs> <laughs> and it's positively fun to be the interviewer. And you could do both. You could do both.